The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome once again, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. This is The Steady Investor, and I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Very nice day in Chicago today, isn't it? It is very nice. Yes. Um, You know, a month ago, we were speaking on The Steady Investor, and we were talking about two particular things. One was Brexit. And mm-hmm. one was U.S. Uh, labor market, the U.S. labor market. Mm-hmm. We, here we are a month or so later, and we're right back in the same place again. We saw the Bank of England uh, decided to, um, to cut interest rates a, a quarter of a percent and also uh, expand its QE policies. Um, and we also have a, a big uh, a non-farm payroll uh, report coming out tomorrow morning. You know, it's very clear that the monetary policy has a much greater effect on the market immediately uh, than the economic policy. From an economic standpoint, you have to understand that if I look historically at uh, country growth rates in terms of GDP growth, okay, and I plot that on the x-axis, and on the y-axis, I look at the uh, you know forward return of the country's uh, market. There's not a uh, relationship between la- larger GDP growth in year zero and larger market growth, uh, you know, equity market growth in year one to three. And the reason is the equity market uh, builds in expectations in terms of economic growth. And what drives the equity market is not whether we have GDP growth that's weak or strong or low or high, it's whether the GDP growth is higher than expected. So if you look, for instance, in 2009, uh, the market went up dramatically. I think it was up, you know, twenty some odd percent. Right. And in that year, GDP growth was 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 non-existent. It was flat to to down for the first half of two thousand nine, and up for a slight half. It might have been flat. So what what happens is, if I look at a regression analysis, I say, well, what was GDP growth in two thousand nine? What did the market do? GDP growth shows very very low GDP growth. Right. And uh, very very high equity market growth because. Coming into 2009, after the 08 crisis, the expectation was for a continued uh, collapse of the U.S. economic system, and that reversed itself. Right. So what's happening right now in the uh, equity markets is not that the market is responding to earnings expectations or even GDP expectations. What is happening is that as soon as there's a slight hiccup anywhere in the world in terms of growth, the central bank in that region uh, stimulates the econ- stimulates the financial system by lowering uh, interest rates, and the expectation is that the lower, uh, <clears throat> sorry, the lower interest rates 
will cause financial assets to rise, which will make people wealthier, and then they'll go and buy more stuff. But the issue is that the reason this isn't working very well is that the increasing in financial assets is mostly helping people who own stocks, uh, who own real estate, which are not the people who, when they get more money, run out and spend it. Mm-hmm. So the, the group of people who are, you know, sort of in the middle uh, are the people who, in terms of economic uh, wealth or income distribution, are the ones who will spend more money if they get more money. Uh, but what's happening is the central banks are stimulating the asset prices and it's not having a result in GDP growth. So with, with the net result of Brexit is that the expectation of interest rates are going to be lower for longer than expected. And that's been a net positive for the stock market, even though outside of sort of technology, we're not seeing very, very uh, strong uh, economic, uh, strong earnings growth. Right. For the British pound, however, it's uh, it's fallen on this news this morning as well. But it is, as you say, probably better for the U.S. equities market in the near term. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the, I mean, the British pound's going to fall because interest rates in uh, Britain are going lower. And as interest rates in Britain uh, go lower, uh, demand for the British crown uh, goes lower. And I, I just saw an article today saying uh, London is no longer the most expensive city in the world. It's down New York. And the reason is because the the, the pound depreciates. Right, exactly. And so the, the net result of this is that the U.S. corporations, if you think about a U.S. multinational, they're selling goods. They're selling the goods to England. They're selling the goods to Europe. Now when they sell the goods to England, they're in pounds. The pound's a little bit lower. When they sell the goods to France, they're in euros. We're still selling goods to both those areas. Right. So the fact that Brexit happened doesn't have a huge effect on multinational earnings if you're not selling a tremendous amount of – if you're not competing against British firms dramatically. Mm-hmm. But the British central bank cutting interest rates is going to keep interest rates low for a very, very long period of time. And the Federal Reserve is not going to raise rates for quite some time until after the election, I would expect. And the net result is that if interest rates stay this low for this extended period of time with the 10-year Treasury at 1.5% and the uh, dividend yield on the S&P 500 is 2%, it's a no-brainer that you're going to continue to see a movement out of fixed income and into equity. So equities are slightly expensive relative to historical valuations. They're about 10% above where they've been historically. Okay. But they're extremely cheap relative to the price of fixed income securities. So what this is telling us is that you're going to continue to see this activity from corporations where they're issuing debt and global debt issuance is up about like 3% year over year uh, on a year to date basis. And they're going to not be issuing equity. They're going to be buying back equity. And if we look at IPO activity, it's down 40 to 50%. So the, the lack of IPO activity and the increase in fixed income activity shows you that the corporations are selling what they see as expensive, which is their debt, and they're not selling what they think is cheap, which is their equity. And they're, what they're actually doing is they're selling debt, they're using the proceeds of debt to buy back stock, to reduce the shares outstanding, to increase the earnings per share. And this is going to continue as long as the 10-year Treasury yield is lower uh, than the, uh, the dividend yield on stocks. Right. Well, the in the Bank of England, there was a two-tiered strategy. Uh, one was uh, obviously lowering interest rates, but the other was uh, not only um, expanding its QE, its quantitative quantitative easing program, 
by 60 billion pounds, and that's 435 billion, right. if that means anything. But also uh, corporate bond uh, repurchases of up to 10 billion right. pounds. So that's basically what you're saying, too, right. is, is you're buying it back into. So it's, it's, it's trying to reinvigorate the English uh, economy based on anticipating based on what they can do. They can't uh, start uh, the uh, British government, uh, the UK government, from spending more money. Right. They can't uh, stop, uh, get the UK government to tax less. What they can do is buy as much as many bonds as they want, and they're going to keep buying bonds. And this comes back to the general thesis that the, what, what the markets in aggregate are telling me is that there's one of three things going on. There's either a I don't want to call it a bubble because it's been an overused term, but there's an overinvestment in risk-free assets. There's an over-demand for risk-free assets for things that are guaranteed to pay back money, like uh, German bonds, like UK bonds, like U.S. Treasury bonds. And as a result, these sovereign debt yields are are, are falling below zero. Right. Or there's increased. There's too much risk aversion for risky assets. So it's either they're paying too much for the risk-free assets or they're not paying enough for the risky assets, uh, and they're avoiding stocks more than they should, they're avoiding risky securities more than they should, Amazon is doing well, but given their growth, they should be at a much higher P multiple, Facebook is doing well, but given its growth and its earnings growth, the P multiple should be in the triple, you know, in the, in the high double, it should be much higher than where it is. But there's a third scenario, which is the most, uh, I don't wanna say, which is the strangest scenario, which is that something uh, intrinsic has changed in the economy and we're entering in a period of very, very low inflation growth because we're in a very, very low economic growth period for an extended period of time. So the market is either there's only one way Treasury yields are at 1.5 percent, the 10 year U.S. Treasury at 1.5 percent and, uh, you know, several sovereign bonds are that now have negative interest rates. Either they're paying too much for the bonds they're not paying enough for the equities, or we really have entered a change in what's happened historically uh, due to long, low long-term growth uh, prospects, and we're going to see very, very low uh, inflation and very, very low GDP growth. If it's that third scenario, there's going to be issues in these societies, in the economies, in the social structure of the society, because these the, a standard capitalist society can't function with flat to zero GDP growth for long, long periods of time, especially when the central bank is continually stimulating asset growth. It's continually causing financial assets to go up. So I, I think I'm fairly certain it's the first two and it's not the third, because generally speaking, uh, we can go back to what happened with peak oil. We can go back to what happened in 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, we can go back to, you know, I can go back every five, seven years. There's a scenario that something now has substantially changed. Uh, and there's always some support for it. There's always some support for peak oil. There's always some support for the dot-com companies. And they never quite uh, pan out. And instead, what I would say is let's look at the world as it is. Let's look at how it's historically evolved. Let's uh, make the uh, guess that what's historically happened will happen in the future, especially in terms of the market and the economy. And we look at the, the U.S. Treasuries at 1.5%. And I would say you're going to see Treasury yields start to go up. And uh, as Treasury yields going to go up, you're going to probably see earnings start to recover, and you're going to probably see inflation recover. If the third scenario is correct, people are walking into the grocery store 10 years from now, and milk prices are only uh, 5 to 10% higher for a gallon of milk than what it is. And gasoline is the same price as it is uh, 5 to 10 years from now as it is currently. 
And traditionally, this is not what people have seen occur. And a common sense standpoint says this is likely what's not going to occur going forward. It's much more likely they're causing a bubble in these risk-free assets by just pumping, pumping money into the system. When the Bank of England uh, issues money, they go out and they buy uh, bonds or they buy treasuries or they buy corporate bonds if they're really uh, very, uh, you know, really looking to move uh, the liquidity curve down. Mm -hmm. They don't go and buy stocks. And so as a result, there's probably under-investing in the equity market and there's over-investing in the fixed income market. And those two markets have to come back into into stabilization, but they're not coming in because every single setback that occurs, every single, you know, economies are always two steps forward, one step back. Every single step back results in uh, the central banks buying more bonds, keeping interest rates low. Right. We're seeing that's potentially a very good thing for the equities market going forward then. It, it is, but it's the, the, the issue is it's like uh, it has to stop at some point in time. Equities have to be driven by uh, growing earnings. It's the only way over time. They can't be driven by what, what lowering interest rates does essentially is it props up the P multiple. Because if you think of a stock as the discounted value of all the future earnings that that company is going to earn. So if you buy Coca-Cola stock, uh, you know, you're getting, you're paying now, but you get these dividend payments that Coca-Cola is going to pay in the future. And even if they don't pay you in dividends, everything that they earn, there's a legal structure that if enough of your Coca-Cola shareholders got together, you could take over Coca-Cola and take all the earnings they're, they're generating and pay it as dividends. That, the value of that dividend stream is affected by interest rates. The higher interest rates go, the lower the value of that stream is. The lower interest rates go, the higher the value of the stream is. The lower interest rates go, the more we value earnings that are very, very far off into the future. Mm-hmm. So the lower interest rate environment, when it goes lower than what people are expecting, actually helps growth stocks more than it does value stocks because the value stocks are getting their dividends now a little bit more in the future a little bit more in the future but in the way future you're not expecting AT&T's dividends to dramatically increase and you're not expecting AT&T's earnings to dramatically increase uh, a company like Facebook you're expecting their dividend payments not to start for another 20 years so a very low interest rate environment should push the PE multiple of growth stocks up higher but we know historically that PE multiples can't get too high because historically interest rates tend to mean revert. So right now the market is completely being driven by PE expansion due to a lower than expected interest rate environment. And the issue is there's a limit to how high those PE multiples can expand. But this market could go up dramatically if interest rates stay this low for an extended period of time. Right now, with the 10-year Treasury at 1.5%, and I think the 30 years not much higher, you're saying that five years from now, your expectation for the five-year rate is you know, somewhere on the order of 1%. If that materializes, and five years from now, the five-year forward rate of Treasuries is at 1%, equities are going to have to be much, much higher. So the equity market is not pricing in the same low level of interest rates for an extended period of time that the fixed income market is is pricing in. So either there's some sort of bubble or overinvestment in fixed income, there's some sort of underinvestment in equities, or the fixed income players are correct, 
And because of changes in growth, because of changes in technological change, because of changes in the labor force due to, to globalization, uh, inflation is going to be very, very low for a long period of time, and wage inflation is going to be uh, pretty much uh, eliminated. And without wage inflation, you're not going to see price inflation. But generally speaking, the equity market is benefiting from the low interest rate environment. The lower that interest rates stay longer, the higher, uh, higher stocks are going to go. And if the stock market surprises by starting to generate year-over-year -year earnings growth mm -hmm. instead of the year-over-year -year earnings declines <laughs> we've been seeing, uh, the, the, it could melt to the upside very easily. Okay. Let me play a little hypothetical okay. with you. Got it. Uh, we're, let's say the Fed steps in. We see a quarter, pay, a quarter percent rate hike, let's say December. And then when the economy gains a little bit more traction, we see maybe two or three mm -hmm. uh, rises in 2017. How does that affect the scenario you just discussed? The, Before we go to Brexit, right, right. the, the key issue is when you say the economy recovers and then the Fed raises uh, two to three times. Statistically, when the Fed raises rates, it's generally good for the market because they're not raising rates in a vacuum. They're raising rates because you're seeing a, a recovery in earnings, because you're seeing essentially the mark, the economy heat up. Inflation. Inflation. So if, if I think about like the world and I think about interest rates and I think about earnings, and I can say, well, earnings uh, earnings can either go up or they can go down. GDP can either go up or down. You're either in an expansion or a recession. I think about interest rates. Interest rates can go up or down. Interest rates are either going higher or they're going lower. And I look at how the market does in these four quadrants. So I have one quadrant where GDP goes up and interest rates go down. I have another quadrant where GDP goes up and interest rates go up. I have a, th a third quadrant where GDP goes down and interest rates go up. And I have a fourth quadrant where GDP goes down and interest rates go down. For the three quadrants outside of the quadrant where GDP goes down and interest rates go up, market does okay. okay. The market loses <laughs> so much money in the quadrant when GDP goes down and interest rates go up that it destroys the returns in all the other three quadrants and gets you to this much lower rate of return. So all the other three quadrants have double-digit annualized rates of return for the market. It's this period of time when the GDP goes down and interest rates go up that it completely destroys the uh, returns, so the double-digit returns come back to about 600 basis points above the risk-free rate. Okay. As long as we collectively, as a world economy, as a U.S. economy, avoid the scenario where GDP goes down and interest rates go up, we are okay. And that's why, as soon as the Fed just hints they're going to raise rates, you're going to see the market uh, trend down a little bit because right now we're in a scenario where GDP is not going up dramatically and you're seeing, in fact, earnings decline on a year-over-year -year basis. Great. You're listening to The Steady Investor with Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. To contact a representative at Zacks Investment Management, call 800-249-2934. Uh, also, you can email us at ziminfo at zacks.com. Uh, we're going to take a short break and be right back with The Steady Investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. 
With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome again. This is The Steady Investor on Voice America's business channel. I'm Mark Vickery. I'm joined by co-host Mitch Zacks, portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. I wanted to say before we started talking about something else, uh, for anyone listening to this program right now in real time, you can call in and speak with Mitch and myself at 866-472-5790. We'll patch you right in. Again, that number if you want to talk to Mitch Zacks, 866-472-5790, especially if you have a question uh, to discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, or for more information. And you can also email uh, Zach's Investment Management at ZimInfo at Zach's.com. And there's also the website ZimWealth, Z-I-M-Wealth.com. Now, Mitch, we were talking, uh, we've, I think, done the Bank of England uh, justice by discussing uh, in, in depth what they've just decided to do today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, U.S. labor market. We've got the Bureau of Labor Statistics mm-hmm. has a, a, the big monthly uh, non-farm uh, payroll number coming out. We're not really expecting uh, much of a wide uh, degradation from what we've had, but the last two months have been quite wild. May had 11,000 new jobs, and last month, June, had 287,000 new jobs. So that's a huge discrepancy. What are we looking at with that? Well, well, there's a major issue with uh, labor participation. So what's what's going on is that it's a bifurcated uh, labor market, that the labor market of people who are highly skilled is relatively robust. Uh, people, uh, companies are indicating they're having difficulty finding people who are highly skilled, but sort of the mass labor market is under some pressure due to globalization. Right. So the, the basic uh, idea with the labor market over time is the first, there's the observation that if you don't have wage inflation, you generally don't have price inflation. We haven't seen wage inflation in like a 15-year period in the country. And the explanation is one that technological change, which used to be a substitute, uh, a complement of labor. So it used to be you would have to buy capital, hire labor. The capital and the labor working together could produce something is now becoming a substitute. So they're able to uh, generate production more with technology and less with labor, which is putting downward pressure on labor. And then you have globalization where 
you have essentially these these large communist countries uh, effectively putting their uh, their population online in some sort of mercantilism, uh, but basically allowing their population to now work in the global workforce, and that's increasing the supply of labor. So the demand for labor is decreasing because of technology, and the supply of labor is increasing because of this massive influx of uh, globalization. And the net result is is putting downward pressure on uh, wages. I mean, if you look at it uh, just you know very objectively, what you're seeing in the U.S. is a combination of immigration, globalization, and the lack of trade unions uh, putting downward pressure on wages. And that does not seem like there's any chance of a be- uh, of stopping. And the concern is that it's causing disruption in the society, uh, which you're seeing uh, in, in the political process. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm not seeing the wage inflation that you would have to see to have inflation materialize. And if that was materializing, you wouldn't see the 10-year treasury at 1.5%. So again, you you have the central banks putting downward pressure on interest rates by buying bonds. They right. increase bond prices, interest rates go down. Uh, but at the same time you're having that, you have this, these pressures on wage inflation. The net result is it looks like you're going to have a long-term period of low inflation. I keep looking at the 10-year treasury at 1.5%. Mm-hmm. I keep looking at where it's been historically for the last 100 years. I see it's lower than it's ever been. And I say, well, most likely it's going to go up. And if the 10-year treasury does rise and you start to see some inflation, all these all these investors who are piled into these, quote, risk-free assets are going to rush out of it. And I think a large number of them are going to rush into equities because you're going to see some recovering economy. So the U.S. economy is like the best economy on the bad block. It's the only economy globally that has a chance of growing or looks like it it has a chance of growing in the next quarter uh, dramatically. And if it surprises to the upside, the market could uh, could go higher. If and and, uh, if it doesn't, if it just keeps sort of going around meandering as it is, interest rates are going to stay very, very low. And if you think about that, uh, what other country on earth is actually even considering an interest rate hike? Right. And then that's to, that, that's a very uh, good testament to the fact that the U.S. economy is, is much more robust than these other economies. And I would be overweighting U.S. equities at this point in time as opposed to international uh, equities. Because it, when these because you're going to lose you're going to lose on that allocation if everything recovers dramatically. If everything recovers dramatically, they're going to go to the most beat up economies in the world and those equity markets are going to appreciate the most. Uh, But you're going to protect yourself if things uh, continue to either meander where they were at or if things deteriorate. So if things deteriorate, you're going to see an increased flow of capital into the U.S., an increased flow into U.S. treasuries. Uh, We'll put uh, lower interest rates, uh, you know, even uh, drive interest rates lower. Again, from a like a market prognostication standpoint, what you want to do is just figure out, are you ever going to be in a scenario where you have GDP declining and you have interest rates rising? And mm-hmm. if you're in that scenario, the market will get hit very hard. But I don't see that scenario materializing unless the Federal Reserve makes a mistake. And it seems like they're leaning more towards being too dovish than being too hawkish. Mm-hmm. The mistake they're going to make is they're going to leave the quantitative easing for too long. They're going to leave the low interest rates for longer than they should. And you're going to start seeing inflation start to really uh, materialize. And that might spin a little bit out of control. Now it have I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the scenario. But right now, 
you know, it feels to me like there has to be a reckoning. You can't have every central bank throughout the world continue to print money, continue to buy bonds, and just have the economy just say, well, that's okay. At some point in time, the federal bank's balance sheet has to be said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know where that is. I don't know if it's at its current level, if it's 10% more, if it's 20% more, if it's 50% more than it is. And if you talk to central bankers, they're like, well, we have, they have no issue. They can just print money to, to pay back uh, you know, what they owe in liabilities. And it's, um, but, but you have to believe there has to be some reckoning. And the danger in this scenario is that they continue, the Bank of England continues pumping money into the system, the U.S. Federal Reserve continues pumping money into the system, and eventually the reckoning occurs. And uh, I, I don't think we're there yet, and I don't think we're there in terms of the complacency of the market. Right. If that's going to happen, people are going to be very complacent. They're going to be saying you can invest in equities all the time because they never go down. And right now what I'm seeing is a tremendous amount of wall of worry, of somewhat fear in the equity markets, people believing the equity markets are topping out. We had a you know a large client. He's very concerned about the markets. Institutional clients are very concerned about the market. Th- these concerns are not what happens at a market top. What at a market top the even at his, historic highs. Even at historic highs. I mean, generally speaking, when the market hit high, hits highs, it continues to hit highs. So if you if you read in the paper, market's hitting highs. Generally, you want to be buying the market because that's an indication the market's going to keep hitting highs. Right. Uh, at market tops you tend to have people more greedy than they are fearful. So you tend not to have articles in the press talking about the world uh, you know, uh, coming undone. You tend not to have political candidates saying the world is coming undone. You tend not to have investors being concerned about market exposure. It's the opposite. It's the market has gone up for so long, uh, for, for so many years, that no one can remember what the, the pullback feels like. And they're nervous about missing out in future gains, the fear of missing out. And they have to they have to get invested. Right. And I, I'm seeing absolutely none of that sentiment currently. Instead, every single issue that comes out, out uh, gives a sort of uh, flashback to what happened in 08. Oh, this is just like the bubble. This is the bubble. It's the bubble in here. It's the bubble in tech stock. It's the bubble in, 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 in Federal Reserve. It's the bubble in interest rates. It's the bubble in risk-free assets. People are very sensitive They're about it. They're very, this. very sensitive to asset prices becoming out of whack. And generally, markets don't top until people are not sensitive about that. What you refer to as a market exuberance. It's, it, you're, not, you're, you're nowhere close to the exuberant phase of the market. You're nowhere close to a phase where people are very excited about the stock market, where people are saying, oh, retirement's not an issue for me. I just have to put more money into the stock market. Mm. And that's what you see at the top of all these uh, all these things. From, from like a structural standpoint, the next issue that hits the market is not going to be the same as the last issue. The banks are in very good shape. Their capital levels are much, much higher than where they've been at. I think the last stress test said they could withstand two years of a, a full-blown depression uh, before they even have to uh, go and, and get any bailout. So you're, you're talking about the next issue is going to be is going to come from a place that no one is expecting right now, and the concern for the market again is that the Federal Reserve, it's this concept of complacency. Because the Federal Reserve has not raised rates when it was hard to, 
that when they need to, they don't have it available uh, to lower. Interesting. And so the concern is there's some stress on the market. There's something out there we're not anticipating. It hits the market. It hits uh, the U.S. economy. And what does the Federal Reserve do? What does the Bank of England do? They can't really, you know, they can buy more bonds. They can engage in more quantitative easing. They can't lower rates much lower than they are. They're already, you know, borderline negative. Right. Um, but what, what you, I mean, that's the danger. Uh, but the, the upside to this is that things just gradually recover. And if things just gradually recover, the Bank of England stops printing money, the Federal Reserve stops printing money, the economy recovers, interest rates tick up, inflation starts to tick up, corporate earnings tick up, and in, interest rates are lower than where they've been expected. So the PE multiple doesn't come down that dramatically, and the higher earnings growth pushes stocks higher. And I think even Warren Buffett said if interest rates stay this low for an extended period of time, uh, stocks are going much, much higher. They, they should be they should be at a much higher PE multiple. So the historical PE multiple is based on a historical interest rate environment. If that interest rate environment doesn't materialize because of some structural change that's occurred in the economy, uh, the stock market is going to go higher. So it, with all these things, it's looking in my mind, it's easier for the market to surprise to the upside. That earnings come in stronger than expected, that interest rates remain lower than expected, that is to surprise to the downside. That earnings come in weaker than expected because expectations are already being ratcheted down, or interest rates rise much faster than expected because there's this general perception that interest rates have to rise and that there is this bubble in these risk-free assets. Right. Well, that brings me to an interesting point. We're here in Q2 earnings, pretty much at the, at the right. back end of it now, uh, but it is the fifth consecutive quarter of negative earnings. Right. right. Um, John Blank was on the show a couple yeah. weeks back. He said it's effectively over the negative earnings uh, for the quarter, and we're going to see it show up in the Q3 returns when we uh, in September, October. If Q3 surprises to the upside, and you see, this is the issue: is because we're coming off a quarter where we've had year-over-year negative earnings growth. I think it was, uh, and I, I think you might have talked to John, he, there's an expectation that if you adjust for the energy companies, outside of energy, you do see some degree of positive earnings growth. When you include the energy companies, you see negative inaccurate currently. earnings growth currently. All you have to do is have slight upward earnings growth and have interest rates stay as low as they are and the market goes higher. Well, another thing you said was that the energy companies and the yeah. industrials, things keeping the market back right now, right. are going to be gaining double digits in 2017. What I'm saying is that because expectations are set so low, if you don't have the shock that I'm worried about, you should see the market continue to trend higher at its historical rate of about 6% above the risk-free rate. So okay. my expectation is over the next 12 to 18 months, I'd say 12 to, to, to 16 months, you should see the market appreciate uh, by about 6 to 9% Okay. At, uh, on an annualized basis. It'll go up, it'll come down, it'll be a, a correction at some point in time. But at the end of the day, I would expect the S&P 500 to be about 6% to 9% higher than its current level uh, in at the beginning of August 2017. Very interesting. Well, I want to go back to something you okay. were talking about before, which was the downward pressure on wages, which yeah. we've seen for several years. You said 15 years or so. Yeah, yeah there have been no, I mean, this is median median wage rates in the U.S. I don't think have changed for a 16-year period. Now, what we've heard, though, in a political election yes. year uh, is a, 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 a proposals to raise the minimum wage. Right. Would that have an effect on, uh, on that downward no, pressure the, on the, wage? The, 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 you don't have that sort of, I mean, you're talking millions of employees, right? So you're not talking that the minimum wage is affecting, it's affecting some percentage of them. Uh, there are structural issues in the economy. The struct, there's three things 
that are causing wages to go lower. The first is there's been an increase, and these are just factual things. I'm not trying to get political. Sure, no, I don't want to. There's been an increase in immigration. As you increase immigration, you have more people competing for the same jobs, especially on the lower minimum wage jobs. As you have more people competing for those jobs, uh, wages go lower. The second thing that's happened is you have globalization. So at the same time, the employee in the U.S. is competing against an immigrant coming into the U.S. Mm-hmm. who's working here in a manual labor job. They're competing on sort of the higher end and even the middle end, maybe a, a client service representative or like a call center is competing against uh, people overseas in the Philippines, in China, in India. For pennies on the dollar. For pennies on the dollar. And and, and for, the, for, the, for them to justify a wage rate that's uh, t- 10 times, they have to be 10 times as productive. Mm. But a programmer in the U.S. is not 10 times, some of them are, but you know, on average, they're not going to be 10 times as productive as the person who is trained in India. Right. And so you have immigration, you have globalization, and you have the lack of unions. If you look at the percentage of the workforce that had union representation 30 years ago versus the percentage today, it's been a huge decline. Right. And if you look at the companies, they're, they're, the companies, I, I think we just saw that the five largest companies in the S&P 500 are all now technology companies. Wow. Uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, uh, and, I, I, and, and I forget the fifth one, but, but you, you're seeing the five largest companies essentially uh, be tech companies. Not industrials. Not industrial companies. So, so think back to when Ford or when GM was driving the U.S. economy. Think of what the workforce looked like. Think of the number of people you had at these large organizations. Ever since the 1950s, the number of employees in a company has been decreasing over time uh, because of technology. So Facebook can have a market cap that's higher than any industrial ever got in its day in terms of being the largest uh, capitalization company. Or think of Facebook versus Exxon. So think... Facebook probably has a, I believe, has a market cap uh, larger than Exxon. How many employees are at Facebook? A couple thousand. Right. How many employees are working at Exxon? Tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. Right. In all sorts of countries, drilling all, drilling all sorts of things. And their engaged, margins aren't even margin, comparable. Right. Their margins aren't comparable. So that's what's that's what's going on. Is that you have immigration, you have globalization, you have the lack of unions, and you have this change in the economy. Uh, away from these jobs, but it's the immigration, the globalization, and the lack of unions putting downward pressure on uh, wages. Both political parties favored all three of those things uh, for a period of uh, 15, 20 years, and that's that's kind of why we're at where we're at. So it pulls up the uh, old Henry Ford uh, maxim: is that who's going to buy the cars that are being produced if they don't have anyone on the uh, in, on the uh, line producing them? And and it is a real worry, mm. even though. People might be better off by being able to buy much, much cheaper goods. Right. We're going to take a short break in a moment. I wanted to remind our listeners, if you want to call in and talk to Mitch Zacks, who uh, is, I want to make sure that I get uh, everything right here, portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. To talk to to Mitch on the air today, call 866-472-5790. You're listening to The Steady Investor. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. This is the third segment of The Steady Investor. I'm Mark Vickery. I'm joined today by the co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, I wanted to first say that if you're listening to the show and you'd like to contact a representative uh, at Zacks Investment Management, call 1-800-249-2934. And you can discuss managing your retirement assets or for more information, you can email ZimInfo, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, info at Zach's.com, Z-A-C-K-S. Also, there's a website, ZimWealth.com. And uh, I also wanted to say, if you wanted to call into this program right now, you can dial this number and speak right with Mitch Zach's directly, 866-472-5790. Uh, now, Mitch, you do an article every week called Mitch on the Markets. Okay. And that's for Zach's Investment Management. And the most recent article that I have in front of me here is called Are Stocks Too Expensive? You've touched on this a little bit in the first two segments of this. Uh, but let's start with you said right away, logic holds that as an item becomes more expensive, buyers become more reluctant. And you're seeing uh, – the, the, so explain this uh, a little bit, the dichotomy you're seeing here. Well, it, it's basically the reason that uh, – I, I guess you start with an aphorism that trees can't grow to the sky. So PE multiples can go higher, they can go lower, but there's a limit to how high they can go and there's a limit to how low they can go. They okay. have to stay within a range. So if the market is <clears throat> excuse me, expanding primarily due to PE expansion, uh, you're, it, it's going to be very hard for the market to go higher if the PE multiple becomes uh, too high. Right now, the forward S&P 500 PE multiple, so if we look at the price of the companies in the S&P 500, and we divide it by the forward uh, projected earnings, you're looking at a forward P multiple is just around 17 times forward earnings. Okay. Historically, over the last 25 years, through recessions, through expansions, through bubbles and whatnot, 
It's been about 16 times. So we're pretty much in line. Well, we're, we're higher than where we've been historically. Okay. But I do not believe that's a worry because the interest rate environment is so low. In a lower interest rate environment, you should see a higher P multiple. Okay. Now, you also say there are emotional challenges that come with investing, and they, those shouldn't be overlooked. We yeah, understand that. Yeah. No, the key, the key to this entire – to making money as an investor, especially as an individual investor – is to be able to get as much of your portfolio into equities and to keep it there for as long a period of time as you possibly can and not to get shaken out. Right. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, well, the uh, S&P 500 right now is at 17 times forward earnings. It's historically been about 16 times. I'm going to wait until it becomes 13 times forward earnings. You could lose out on a massive bull market and I've been doing all these studies or looking at all these historical studies with a research assistant in terms of trying to determine is there a way of predicting or expecting or anticipating where the market is going based on P multiples. It, it's very, very weak. So you can't look at the P multiple and say the P multiple is going to predict what's going to happen to the market over the next one year. P multiples since the recession uh, peaked in 2000 at the beginning of 2009. So that's when they became the highest. Uh. And you would have said, well, the P multiple is super high. And you were seeing articles in the New York Times saying, well, P multiples are so high at this point, there's no way stocks can perform. And what happened is prices were accurately reflecting a economic recovery. So P's might be high now because they're accurately reflecting uh, potential growth in earnings. The real sort of doom and gloomers will focus on a, a metric called the cyclically adjusted a P multiple. The CAPE. The CAPE. And that, uh, you know, there's all this uh, detail that you look at the prices instead of dividing by the forward earnings, which they're going to say are biased because analysts are too optimistic, uh, you look over the historical earnings averaged over the last 10 years. And the reason is you adjust for cyclicality that way. So you have expansions, you have recessions. Over the last 10 years, this is what these companies earned. This is what the P multiple is. And they're uh, compared to, you know, where they are about to look at. Uh, you're a little bit higher or about in line where you have been on 25-year average. But if you go back and look in the post-1980 period, P mul CAPE multiples have been very low. And when CAPE multiples become very high, there's some statistical research that says, well, going forward, that means that you're going to have lower returns. What's inherent, though, in the CAPE multiple is looking at the earnings over a 10-year period. So we're let's see, we're 2016. So you're looking at earnings from 2006 through 2016. Mm -hmm. Well, in 2008, we had a huge negative earnings generated by large banks, and you had a huge earnings recession. Right. You had you had major companies generating billions upon billion dollars of losses just overnight it's because an of the historical anomaly the, as well. Well, that's the question. So, what the CAPE ratio does historically is it assumes that what happened over the last ten years is what's going to happen somewhat over the next ten years. So the last 10 years, you had this expansion, you had this recession, blah, 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 blah. This is about what you had in earnings. So your P, your price ratio should be about that level because over the next 10 years, the same sort of stuff is going to happen. You're going to have an expansion, you're going to have a recession. Instead, what the CAPE ratio is doing at this point is it's looking at the 08 and 09 and saying over the next 10 years, one of the 10 years is going to be a repeat of the 08 and 09 period. So that's causing the CAPE ratio because it's causing the earnings to be very, very low to, to be extremely high. So your, your trusting in the CAPE ratio should be dependent on whether you think that what happened in 08 is repeating 
event that's going to occur over the next 10 years or if it's a unique event that occurs every 40 or 50 years. So at this point, we're not seeing anything that would indicate such a thing. No, because what happens is the whole society adjusts for whatever, the, whatever happened in 08. Uh, regulations change. Structures change. Uh, the, these banks are being hollowed out. Uh, they, they're reducing their workforces, most large investment banks. Uh, their profit per partner, their profit per employee is going down. The revenue per employee is going down. And what you're seeing with these large banks is that they're not returning uh, to what they did before because they're not leveraging up. So they're taking their capital and they're being restricted on what they can use it to. They're not engaging in proprietary trading as much, uh, Dodd-Frank and all these other things. And they're, they're not engaging in activities that uh, cause a lot of leverage to occur. They're, they're becoming almost like uh, regulated uh, financial utilities mm -hmm. where their their capital is being controlled centrally by a regulatory apparatus. So it's unlikely you're going to see uh, people are smart enough that when they get hit with one thing, they tend to change what they're doing so they're not hit again. The society was hit with a huge problem with large money center banks and uh, you know CDOs and, and, and uh, chopping up mortgages. They're not going to get hit the same time again. It's going to be something different, and they will get hit again, but it'll be something different. Uh, but basically, I look at the CAPE ratio, and I say, well, I don't think 08 and 09 is going to be uh, repeated. And thus, I want to exclude 08 and 09 from the 10-year average, and the CAPE ratio looks very reasonable. And okay. someone will say, well, that's not, the, that's not how we run the CAPE ratio. We mm -hmm. run it, we look back every 10 years, and uh, we, we don't, uh, in the historical analysis, we didn't adjust for the depression, we didn't adjust uh, for the oil crisis, we didn't adjust for whatever the crisis was of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that what happened in 08 and 09 was extremely unique. I don't think it's going to repeat. I do think we will have another correction. I do think eventually the market will eventually crash. These things have to happen. It's not if they happen, they will, will continue to happen. But what we've seen historically is the way you generate wealth is you invest and then you uh, hold for a long period of time. Someone came into my office and they said they're worried the market is topping out. And I pulled up a chart I have on my wall, which is of the uh, S&P 500 when I started the company uh, in, in like 1995 or 96, when I started the investment management side of the company with Ben. Uh, it's a, I think it's from IBD. And it's a graph of the uh, of the S and P 500 over that period of time, from like 19 uh, probably uh, 50 uh, to 1995 or 1996. And you look it over, you say, well, where did, where did the market top out here? You say, well, it topped out here, it topped out here, it topped out here. And then you look forward another five years, another seven years, and it's then higher than where it was when it topped out. So the the key to this is markets top out, they go down, they enter bear market periods, recessions occur, you see corrections. You even see sell-offs, you even see panics, but if you just stay steady, you don't get shaken out of it, and you hold for long periods of time, and you ignore what's going to happen over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, and you focus what's going to happen over the next 60 months, okay. the next five years, the next 120 months, the next 10 years, and you just hold equities, you do relatively well over long periods of time. And my expectation would be that the market would appreciate at around a six to uh, 600 basis points above the risk-free rate. Let's say the risk-free rate goes up to 7%. You're appreciating at about a 7% annualized rate of return. If you can hit that net of fees and reinvest the dividends into the market, uh, you're looking at a doubling of your assets in about 10 years. And this is the major factor as you as your job as portfolio manager is, to look at that longer term. It, you have to focus on the longer term because the shorter term cannot be predicted. 
and it has no meaning. It's the same way in this chart on my wall where I look at the movement of the market from the 1940s uh, to uh, 1995. All these things are small fluctuations. Now, at the time, they don't look like small fluctuations. At the time, 08, 09 did not feel like a small fluctuation. No, it didn't. Uh, 20 years from now, it'll be a small fluctuation in the movement of the S&P 500 upward. Basically. Understanding that from a psychological standpoint, internalizing that, and changing your investment decisions around that known fact is how you make money in equities. Very is that you, instead of saying, okay, I'm worried about 08, I'm worried about a crash, I'm worried about correction, I'll tell you flat out, we're going to see a correction, we're going to see an eventual crash, we're going to see an eventual pullback. What you have to do is you have to ignore it when it occurs. You cannot predict when it's going to occur. You invest and you try and stay invested over long periods of time. And to be clear, you're not predicting any particular thing to no, happen. No, it's not. I just know that it will happen. That's, right. that's just how the market works, is that the market works by giving you small little gains month after month after month and then huge losses. And because of that, but because of that, you never wake up and uh, you say, well, the market's up 10% today because XYZ flash crash is happening or whatever. Mm. It's always the opposite. But because you get small little gains <clears throat> and then occasionally you get some huge loss that takes you, you know, six months back, 12 months back, 18 months back, mm -hmm. 24 months back, people are very concerned about the market because they're, they're, the loss looms so large in their mind. And the way that people deal with gains and losses is that the small little losses, they, 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 the, the losses, the large losses are twice as harmful to someone psychologically as the game. So if I said, you know, we're going to play a game and this game we're going to give you, you know, $10 every time we play or we're going to play another game and there's a 50% chance you're going to lose $100 and a 50% chance you're going to make $200 which game do you want to play? You'd say I play the most people would say I play the game that gives me the small gains over and over sure. because I don't want to lose the hundred dollars. Right. The market is set up to play to these fears of the psychology of people, and that's why it's able to appreciate it at this high, this relatively you know six to six to nine percent above the risk free rate on an annualized basis over long periods of time. Okay, we don't have a lot of time to talk here, okay. and I do want to say uh, to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, call this number eight hundred two four nine. 2934. And then you can discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, or for more information, you can email ziminfo at zax.com uh, or visit our website zimwealth.com. Uh, to tighten this perspective a little yeah. bit, Mitch, with the few uh, minutes we have remaining, um, if earnings, re what you say in the Our Stocks Too Expensive Mitch on the Markets article, if earnings rebound nicely to, in the next six to 12 months, which is your expectation, then this will likely further support investor confidence. And that's what we're looking at for the next six to 12 months. We're looking at a positive scenario. It's yeah. like when you have the wall of worry that we're currently climbing, you have all these things that people in their minds are saying can potentially go wrong with the economy, with the world, with the political system. And what happens is as the market prices in as if those things can occur, and then when they don't occur, you don't have to have a lot of good things occur. You just have to not have these huge disappointments. So you don't have to have earnings grow dramatically. You just have to have them not fall and interest rates stay low and the market should should head higher effectively. That's very, very good. Uh, Mitch Sachs is the portfolio manager and founding principal at Sachs Investment Management. Uh, and I'm your co-host uh, for The Steady Investor, Mark Vickery. Uh, thank you all for listening to Voice America's business channel um, here on voiceamerica.com. 
uh, next week we're going to be discussing uh, other things uh, on the steady investor. I believe uh, real time uh, we'll, we will have that uh, labor market number that's going to come out tomorrow morning. Um, what other things? I guess Q2 earnings will be over with by then, uh, more or less, and we'll have a, a, a forward look to Q3. Oh. Um, so, uh, Mitch, we hope to hear from you again. And uh, all you listeners at home, thanks for, for staying in touch. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Everyone have a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 